welcome our beloved Anne Raphael back. Do you know how lucky we are to have these two fabulous pianists in our hip pocket at Hope Church? Chris and Anne. I had a packed meeting in my office Wednesday night. The latest Roots series started, and the class is a small group ministry, a safe space to explore ideas and express opinions. Along the way, we learn about Unitarian Universalism and the history of Hope Church and a bit about ourselves. And I always keep an open flip chart to park any and all questions as they arise so that we're sure by the end of the series to answer them all the best we can. And to give me a little time to look something up, should I not know the answer? Lots of those. Um, And this Wednesday, the very first question is one for every single one of us. And I'm going to use it to set the tone for this Sunday before Martin Luther King's birthday. And the question is, why? Why are there only middle-class white liberals here? It's a great question with many answers. Not a simple question. And it is an important question. So we start with that question today. Why are there only middle-class white liberals here? And the phrasing of the question provides some clues that there inevitably are a multitude of answers. The question scoops up class and economics and race and color and political and social philosophies and mixes them together which is who we are as individuals and who we are as a culture, but it's also the hallmark of a stereotype. The word only is a clue because it lumps us all together as a single unit. I encourage all of us to consider or to reconsider our use of superlatives when we're talking about others, always, never, only, These are words that solidify our beliefs and remove any possibility for change or nuance, and they calcify rather than break open. I know from speaking to many of you during and now and after the election that our church has a wide variety of political beliefs. Yes, we are a preponderance of progressive Democrats, but we have people who voted for the whole spectrum in the presidential candidates and belong to every single different political party in our state. We have hope members who struggle to get by financially. And I'm hoping that you all know that you all are generous and allow me, the minister, by office, not by who I am, Kathy Edwards, but as your minister, to have a discretionary fund, which is a fund that's set aside to help um, people, individual causes who might be in dire straits. 
And I want you to know that there are members who, from time to time, need those funds. And yet we have many here who are very well off and able to afford luxuries and generously give of their time and resources. It takes all of us here. The thing about class and economic status and political stance and religious beliefs is they're not always visible in someone. But race and skin color are. Indeed, it is possible to look around this room and see mostly white faces. But we all know that skin color is an imperfect marker for anything. It's not helpful to sort people by race and make assumptions about aptitude or culture or experiences, yet it persists. It persists as a means of distinguishing one group of humans from another. One helpful term you may have heard recently, it's been back in the news, is intersectionality. Is that a word you've been reading about? It's been lifted up. It's also been pushed aside. And it first arose in issues of law. I want you to know where it came from. It came from Kimberly Crenshaw. She was a UC, is, still is, a UCLA scholar. <clears throat> and she coined it decades ago. And the legal case that she cites that is one of the backbones of why she, she felt like this word was needed was there was a group of black female employees who worked for GM. And they sued GM because they couldn't get jobs as secretaries. This will tell you the era of this particular lawsuit. And they argued that there was compound discrimination against them. They were discriminated against both as women and as blacks, and the court denied the case. The courts weighed the allegations of race and gender dis discrimination separately, finding that the employment of African-American male factory workers disproved that GM had any racial discrimination going on in its hiring practices. And the employment of white female office workers disproved their contention of gender discrimination. So the court declined to consider these compound, put-together, intersecting discriminations and dismissed the case. And that's when Crenshaw said, wait a minute. <laughs> it is not that neat and tidy. Our human systems inevitably are interwoven. We all have multiple identities within our lives. So I'm specifically talking about those identi identities as a compounding source of discrimination. They, they, they combine to create a whole that is different from each individual identity. So intersectionality proposes that all aspects of identity need to be examined as simultaneously interacting with each other. 
This is something we're good at, both and. We know the world is complicated. They just can't be observed separately, solely. Intersectionality is not simply a view of personal identity, but rather an overarching analysis of power hierarchies. So what the idea does is it acknowledges the fluidity of culture. It demands we pay attention to dynamics in all of our work in social justice. It allows us to better understand the shift that Martin Luther King Jr. began making in his activism the very last few years of his life. He began to see intersectionality of race with economics, jobs, unemployment, underemployment, and with violence. The Vietnam War, Black Panthers, KKK. When he began speaking out about these overlapping issues, when he began addressing the racism, the poverty, the militarism that threatened to destroy our democracy, the press denounced him. The president rejected him. The black middle class and black militants rejected him. The year before he was assassinated, he endured endless assaults on his character, ideology, and political tactics. He had taken a move away from a single issue of race and said, wait, these are all interwoven. Martin Luther King Jr. and others didn't have the term intersectionality, to describe this tight weave of human culture. But we as Unitarian Universalists do have a series of key principles we abide by. There are seven. They aren't our dogma. They're not our creed. But an understanding of how the world works and how we want to be in the world. And as I reread them, thinking about Martin Luther King and thinking about all the way race is interwoven into all of our other systems, all I could see in these seven principles was how they actually describe intersectionality. They are a means together of describing how fluid and ever-changing our systems and relations are, and actually how vigilant we have to be in 360 degrees to change anything in our world to root out harm and hurt and prejudice and rigidity and hate. So the first principle states we acknowledge and will work to uphold the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Well, that just sounds like we're dealing with one person, but already just trying to be helpful and responsible and loving to a single person as anyone who has any human relations with anyone besides themselves know you've already stepped into something complicated. How do we value both saints and sinners in our midst? How do we account for, how do we deal with, how do we respond to the intersection of conflicting viewpoints of actions and needs 
we always have to be on the lookout for any actions that degrade any individual. And they come from a million different directions. The second principle clarifies the ideal quality of, our, of these intersectionalities. We strive for justice, equity, and compassion. So if things are intersecting and there's not justice, equity, and compassion, there's something deeply wrong. The third principle says we have to find and use tools to change and mature our hearts. We accept one another and encourage spiritual growth in our congregation. The fourth principle says that we are, there are an infinite, infinite number of ways to come together and do this work together. And what that requires is a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. And the fifth outlines the best process we know to make choices and decisions, to deal with how everything is interwoven and interconnected. And we ultimately do have to choose to take action day in and day out, moment to moment. We have the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregation and in society at large. And as Martin Luther King saw then, and many are saying today, right now, when our democratic process is in jeopardy, we must take swift steps to protect it. The sixth principle assures us the scope of our personal and congregational work is large and sweeping. The goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. And the last and seventh principle restates the intersectionality with clarity. We insist upon respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. It names intersectionality as the interdependent web of all existence, the overlap of all human, all inanimate, all animate systems. We are bound together. So why are there only middle-class white liberals here? The truths behind this question come from 360 up and down historically. Let's just talk about religion historically. So Native Americans were not systematically converted to a liberal progressive Christianity, but to a very conservative set of denominations. And the same is true for African Americans. The forms of Christianity, there are loving, fabulous, wonderful forms of Christianity. This is not a sermon denigrating our, our own history and all those who consider themselves Christians here, but there is a warping of every single religious tradition. And the forms of Christianity used to subjugate slaves had to include sharp delineations of hierarchy and had to have a punishing vision of God to support the harsh molds of bondage. It's how it works up in heaven and how it's going to work down here.
So why are we all white, liberal, middle class? Well, the Unitarian tradition has always upheld the value of education and intellectual inquiry as a valuable spiritual resource. So if you're denied an education, when people are systematically denied an education, when we live in a state that is 49th in ranking in education, when people are told they're not human enough to be teachable, then I have to tell you our Unitarian reliance on education and intelligence makes us remote and out of reach. I'm not saying we shouldn't value education. I'm just saying historically it was a way to sift who can come through our doors. And education requires economic resources. Again, that intersectionality. If your family could not or cannot now afford books or transportation or clothing or enough food, these all interfere with learning. So those are some of the there are those are some of the historical reasons. There are also geographic threads to our religious tradition that impose themselves on all of us gathered here today. Cultural threads. And we can't unravel all the crisscrossing human systems making up Hope Unitarian Church in the time we have together. But the strength and value of looking for this intersectionality of oppression is also the means we can use to dismantle the social burdens of our day. And I just hinted at it. We can pick one thread, never forgetting, never forgetting it is connected to all others and begin to pull. And our tightly woven fabric of independent, interdependent web of life begins to run, unravel, rend, open up so we can see more clearly some of the threads that may be abrasive, destructive, harmful. We can see how one oppression may be in cahoots with another. How black workers who are also female are unfairly treated and discriminated against back in the days of GM, the case against GM. And what I've come to understand in the work of Martin Luther King and now all who've picked up his mantle is that seeking justice for all is the work is also deeply personal. So the reading that Anne did about the woman who woke up white and found herself in the story of race. It's easy for us to rest on our Unitarian intellectual tools and read deeply and stay attuned to politics, but not always pay attention to the intersecting threads in our own life. Why are there only liberal, middle-class whites here? One answer is simple. We tend to lead 
American lives. We tend to lead lives in Tulsa where it is easy and entirely possible to stay within a primarily cohesive racial and economic bubble. I've been thinking about this for myself, so I am speaking for myself primarily. But suppose I said tonight, each of us, each one of us are going to host in your home a dinner, just tonight. And I want you to call, when, call all your closest friends and invite them. Would that dinner look a lot like Hope Church? Mine would. In reality, who I hang out with, the people I um, have a book club with, the people I raised my children with, the, the neighborhood I live in is primarily white. And I don't have to give it a lot of thought. And if I called our closest friends... It would look a lot like you all. They're fabulous friends, by the way. (laughs) Because they're a lot like you. So if we want Hope Church to look any different, we have to do the work to say, okay, what in my life allows me to live in a way that does not bump up against someone who has completely different political views than I do or or and I'm uh, I'm I don't want to generalize I'm sure everyone here has friends of a different color friends of a different political political persuasion but for me mine tend to be comfortable with my liberal politics comfortable with my whiteness So what I've started thinking about is, okay, all the decisions I make, how would I pull that thread of race and look beyond it? I'll just give you a small example I've been thinking about. I've been looking into, just for my own selfish um, reasons, I've been looking for a, a silent Buddhist retreat. I'd like to spend time at a silent Buddhist retreat. Never done that. And, um, And in preparing for the sermon, I thought, you know what? Most American Buddhists are white. What's that about? So I've started Googling black Buddhism. And what if I make an effort to find a retreat that is deliberately interracial? What if I did that? I bought a house before I married Joe. It's where we live now. Um, From my parents' inheritance. And I didn't think about it at the time. So I've changed subjects to another part of my life that is I swim in this lovely white world because there was a racial segregation covenant when this neighborhood was developed. Oh, trust me, it is still enforced. (laughs) It's no longer legally there. But now we are on um, the app called My Neighborhood or 
There's an app where everyone who lives in your neighborhood can kind of join in and say, I'm having a package delivered or, or this happened or do you have a good recommendation for someone to clean your gutters or whatever. But I have to tell you how many times what shows up on that is there is someone suspicious, which is code, someone suspicious in our neighborhood. And it's code for black or Hispanic Who's, we, have, we, have, we are lucky we have sidewalks, so that means someone who doesn't belong. So the racial legal covenant that is 100 years old, no longer legally enforceable, is still very well enforced. We swim in a white neighborhood. So what I'm suggesting to all of us is that we have to begin looking at our lives and all the ways without thinking we have a white liberal middle class. And Janet, I'm really glad that Janet made the announcements the way she did because I wanted to say we have opportunities for us to begin looking as a, as a congregation that, well, how do we manage to keep as welcoming and loving as we want to be, how do we manage to keep ourselves looking this way? And maybe we provide some opportunities and you have to think differently. Come march with us in the Martin Luther King Parade and use it as an opportunity to say just hello, hello, how are you, to someone who looks different than you do. You don't have to get into a deep conversation. and ask how they're doing. Maybe a conversation will unfold. Cooking for the homeless is fabulous. Going down and serving is a whole different kettle of fish. You know, and I realized I've done it a lot, but I have not done it with Hope Church, and I have it, so I haven't done it in four or five years. So I'm operating on assumptions of what the homeless in Tulsa look like because I haven't been down there, and I'm suspecting it has changed quite a bit since I've been down there. So what I'm saying is the threads, it is easy for us to make generalizations based on news and what we read, but if we aren't talking one-on-one with others and beginning to make friends and beginning to change who we might invite to our dinner tonight at our houses, then we will always be white, liberal, middle class. We, individually, one by one in our lives, have to find the threads of intersectionality and figure out how that works in our own lives. Where you shop, what you buy, how you look, where you work, who you talk to at work. Because only when we have individual connections with people who are different than we are can we begin to understand the bigger interdependent web of life and that's our task we have to wake up to our own story how we participate our thread and all the threads next to us may it be so